Hello, and welcome to Lower Decks, a Star Trek Discovery podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman, and my alarm clock is a TOS red alert, and my partner still loves me. <laughs> and I'm Valerie Hoagland, and Glenn, this is going to seem off topic, but you know how um, often when women with long hair uh, have just washed their hair, they get out of the shower, they throw another towel on their head? I've heard of this. Yeah, um, I actually have a TNG shirt from the 90s that I use for that exact purpose. <laughs> Well, together we run a speakeasy in the Jeffries tubes. And this episode, we are finally talking about the Star Trek Discovery pilot, just the first half of the pilot, The Vulcan Hello. The Vulcan Hello was written by Akiva Goldsman and Star Trek alum Brian Fuller, and it was directed by the veteran of the Buffyverse, David Semmel. So, Glenn, knower of things, keeper of facts, um, can you tell us a little bit about Brian Fuller and David Semmel and, um, and their veteran status here? Brian Fuller was a real big part of Star Trek Voyager. He uh, was a, a very important creative voice on that show. The uh, Captain Proton stuff is, I think, mostly his, his brainchild. And uh, he was at one point actually going to be the show runner of Star Trek Discovery, though he um, had, to, he had too many commitments and couldn't make them work all at the same time, which had a lot to do with Star Trek Discovery sort of taking too long to get shooting, I, I, I think. Okay, really, that's really interesting that he was involved with, with Voyager, because I actually have a lot to say um, about Voyager uh, in response to this episode today. And what about David Semmel? He says he's a veteran of the Buffyverse. Can you tell us a little bit more? I think he directed four episodes of Buffy, including the sort of canonically worst episode, uh, Go Fish. Then he did a whole bunch of Angel as, as well. So I think probably something close to about eight or ten episodes in the, of, of directing work in the, in the Buffyverse. Okay, so we're being we're being led by some trustworthy people here in a lot of ways. Yeah, these people have some nerd cred. Okay, great. I I trust it. So this is the part where usually we say whether or not we liked it, just so you kind of have a compass uh, to follow us with through the episode. But I'm assuming we're both going to give a very complicated answer to this question. Is that right? That you don't land really firmly on either side right now. Both of us and probably, you know, everyone in the Star Trek fandom, not that I want to appoint myself to be the speaker for everyone, but I suspect that we all had something of a complicated relationship to this episode in that even just if it was hard for us to turn off our hopes and expectations and also perhaps anxiety and sense of potential dread. (laughs) It is crazy that... Like I recognize we're talking about a Star Trek episode of Star Trek right now, but everything that you just said, which are big emotions to feel, I really felt all those things. I had hopes, dreams, anxieties. Like it was, it, it was a lot to process. I just was trying to be Vulcan about it. I was just trying to feel nothing, which is maybe not what TV <laughs> is for or any art. You know, art is actually supposed to make us feel things. So being Vulcan about it perhaps wasn't the best approach. But I will say we, we will, of course, get into the things we liked and things we didn't like as we go through our recap. But I'm, I'm certainly, I certainly left the episode feeling on the plus side of it. I, I will say that I, I did too, and I found myself in the position of, you know, arguing for it um, against a few a few fellow um, Trekker friends who, who, it was, you know, it is really hard to turn off. Nothing can live up to what we, what Star Trek is in our minds at this point, right? Nothing can live up to it. So we're going to really go in there with a critical eye. And I, I also tried to shut it down a little bit. I will say the first time they cracked a joke, I was like, all right. I'll let go. I'll calm down. Star Trek TV episode. <laughs> I'll let you crack the joke. I'm here with you. I also uh, watched it with a Star Trek basically noob 
and um, very positive reaction from the noob. So one thing that's good to say, and of course, you know, that's anecdotal. It doesn't speak for everyone, but it does seem like a good sign that we might be bringing in more fans with this. No, I'm I'm all in favor of that. So I think on the whole, I felt pretty pretty positive about this episode. So are you are you ready to get get started going through it? Yeah. No, I want to. I don't want anyone to turn off the podcast right now. I have some major criticisms, <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah, I'm going to try to find the good in it, and I did find some good in it. So so yeah, let's 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 dive into it. We open with a classic Star Trek voiceover, except that this time it isn't Kirk or Picard or Janeway. It's not Cisco or even Sam Beckett. It's a Klingon. <laughs> so, sorry, you got you got me with that. Didn't see it coming. Um, uh, a Klingon is talking. I'm paying attention. Yes, a Klingon is talking, and we get we even get Klingon subtitles here on the screen, which I thought was very awesome. Uh, but they morph into English, and so we understand that the Klingon is saying is warning. In fact, they are coming. And this is uh, goes next to a, a beautiful shot of space stuff, and it uh, zooms out to reveal a Klingon eye. And then we enter the scene where the Klingon is speaking. And, and at this point, I don't know who this is or, or what he's up to, but he's uh, talking about unity. He says, together, one creed. He wants to confront the foe whose fatal greeting is, we come in peace. And uh, there's a lot to talk about in this scene, Valerie, but we should probably just start... Uh, with the elephant in the room and talk about the new look and the new sound of the Klingons. For the for the look and the sound, I'll give you just like my quick immediate reaction. I Some of the looks of the Klingons I didn't love. There's a few of them where the forehead ridges are just really not pronounced and they have kind of a series of dots that go down the middle of their forehead or circles, which is a little bit too foreign for me for what I expect a Klingon to be. But as we got to know some of the other, see some of the other Klingons in this episode, there was a lot of familiarity there that made me feel comforted. Um, and, and I think they did a great job. And I'll say this again, but clearly the the makeup budget and quality in this premiere here was off the charts amazing all of the aliens looked fantastic it's a beautiful looking episode absolutely yeah this yeah. the the makeup really just some of the you know best we've seen um in the star trek universe and and that was really great it brought me in the sound was a little bit strange to get used to because i know these klingons were still harsh and scary they were good Klingons. They did that, but they weren't as harsh or as scary. I found the sound of the Klingons a little bit more subdued, and I'm not quite sure how I feel about that yet. Do you mean you found that them more subdued than their appearance was, or you found that you feel that Michael Dorn is more terrifying than these guys? I'm just used to someone shouting Kapla, and you know they were harsh and they were speaking Klingon, but I didn't feel like they were shouting as much. Like their their mouths weren't opening as wide. Um, when they were talking and that gave a different ring to the sound of the Klingon. Does that make sense? Oh, definitely. And and I think it's it's absolutely true. You're right that there is something about them. That's almost a little more subdued. I know the internet exploded earlier this year when there were leaked images of, of the Klingons, uh, you know, not looking like Worf or like the original series. Um, You know, I, I didn't particularly care about that either way. Things change. I think, you know, the, TNG era Klingons would have looked a little bit silly in these production values. And uh, uh, so I think it's fine. Uh, you know, and I really, I think I quite enjoyed the way that they looked. And if anything, I think they looked in some ways sort of more like bad guys, like fantasy story bad guys, because they looked a lot kind of orcish. They looked like Peter Jackson's orcs. And I suspect, I expect that we are going to 
get that notion of the Klingons as villains uh, complicated here. And it'll be nice to to have to wrestle with sort of humanizing orcs. <laughs> what a sentence. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, I do hope that they complicate it. There's some signals that they are going to complicate it and nuance it. Um, and and there's an important line that comes up later that addresses this that the, that I would love to talk about. But, um, but yeah, off the bat, I wasn't upset. I also think that... So in general with this episode, there's this tension, I think, that probably exists for most Star Trek fans, which is that they've done this thing where they set it 10 years before TOS, but they're a new Star Trek show and they want to have new stuff, right? They want new uniforms and new fun technology and new aliens and a new look to the Klingons. And that's all great. I want that out of a Star Trek show as well, but it is a little bit hard to square some of it knowing that it's 10 years in the past to TOS to see some things be so different. And so I assume a lot of people are going to say, how did the Klingons look like this 10 years before they look like how they look on the original series? And that's a great valid point. But I would also point out that the Klingons were really ill-conceived in the original series and um, written into the script in a pretty racist way for some of the language that originally described what they were supposed to look like. So I'm happy to to readdress that um, and say, you know what, we don't need to be super faithful to that original plan. I, I agree. And I, I think this this show is doing quite a bit, actually, to connect itself to the other series in in ways that matter more than just the visual language. And even here in this in this first half of the teaser, this this notion of the foe whose fatal greeting is we come in peace is a reference to Captain Jonathan Archer from Star Trek Enterprise, who says we come in peace to the Klingons in, in the Enterprise pilot. Uh, yeah, so that was a nice little like, oh, we're talking about Starfleet now. I guess they don't like them. Um, it pulled me in. It was like, OK, I see where this is going. We have something driving us now. Um, and it was. You're right. They, they, were, they did a lot of really wonderful things to to connect the shows. I was ready to be really upset about it, you know, that it didn't fit in the universe properly. But in a lot of ways, they did a good job. That's one of the ways um, there's some other visual cues we can talk about. I think that a lot of um, there's a couple scenes with a conference table that's like clearly a super 2017 version of the TNG main like situation room conference table. And that made me feel good to see it. So, yeah, I, I think they are doing a lot right. So should we go meet some Starfleet people now? I guess. Yeah, let's go. All right. The second half of our teaser opens on a desert planet where Commander Michael Burnham and Captain Georgiou are on a mission to help the Crepusculans who are facing extinction because a Federation mining accident has dried out their well right as a drought is beginning. Yeah, so this is great. This is our first new alien. That's great. I like new aliens that aren't Neelix. Not that these couldn't have become Neelix, but they didn't. So we're happy about it. And yeah, I thought it was interesting. I, I will like one little nitpicky point. I don't know if you picked up on. Maybe you can just correct me. I felt like at some point Michael says, oh, you know, like it's cool that we're here fixing it as long as nobody notices. But it seems like they totally notice. <laughs> right. They do, and it just, they, they notice, the Crepusculans notice, but the show does not seem to notice that the Prime Directive or, or General Order Number 1 has been violated here um, in at least some small way, which I, I found interesting. I don't think that's an oversight. I think in some ways that's maybe the, the show letting us know that, that this particular incarnation of Star Trek is going to care about different things. 
Interesting. Yeah. So I thought it was an interesting choice to like point out, like to have one of the first things that the main character says be like, oh, hey, we care about the prime directive and then, then kind of not. But, you know, maybe it was meant to be funny um, or a little bit of an homage to the fact that Kirk never follows the prime directive and that we're at a point in the timeline where it exists. But meh. You know, we're a little <laughs> yeah. loose with it. And and we know that Star Trek is always a little loose with it, but nothing more than TOS. So maybe it was meant to be a joke. And in that case, that's kind of funny. I liked it. Yeah, I think you're probably right. I think it, pro- it probably was meant to be a joke. It was meant to let us know not that this is a different type of Star Trek, but in fact that this is uh, this is Kirk's type of Star Trek. And um, I will say there was a little bit, and this follows through for this first, uh, the, the, the teaser uh, opening this episode, you know, there's a lot of like, I'm explaining a thing to explain it to the audience, even though no one would talk this way. You know, and that was a little hard, but, but it was also necessary, and I got over it real quick. Yeah, there was a little of that, but it, it's also, it, and, and there was actually quite a bit of that throughout the show, I felt, but some of it's also just because Burnham speaks and maths like a Vulcan, um, even though she herself is is human. And so I think we're seeing a really emotive actress trying to be unemotive, and I think it make, makes some of, those, some of those lines, some of that dialogue a little bit stilted. Uh, which which then emphasizes the expositional nature of it, and in fact, if anything, that's probably my biggest critique of the of the show. Though we'll, we can we can talk more about that once we've gotten through the whole episode. I think it was also just like little things, you know, when um, uh, when the captain is like, "Tell me what I need to break through the bedrock," and it's like, "Well, you probably wouldn't talk like that. You'd be like, what do I got to do?'" And then she'd rattle off some numbers, you know, but instead we're like, look, we have a fancy new gun and it shoots into bedrock and it has numbered settings. So, you know, that felt a little heavy handed, but also I like new guns and numbered settings and fancy things. So, yeah, I feel very conflicted. This is going to keep coming out. I'm just going to keep making points on both sides of my own argument. Well, some of this is about about letting a new audience know what the rules are and and even the very next scene in the in the teaser here is a, is about letting us know what the rules are so we have we get a storm coming in that's going to prevent the two of them from transporting back to their ship the the Shenzhou you know so this is good for introducing a new audience to what the rules of transporting of beaming are and it it lets us you know see our our captain doing some problem solving as she takes a long walk in the desert sand tracing the pattern of the starfleet emblem which allows her ship to to sort of visually find them uh, and come into the planet's atmosphere and get them and so we, we get our first glimpse of a starfleet ship here when the the shenzhou enters the atmosphere uh, what, what did you think of it at this moment i thought the ship looked great i did i know that um controversially I have the opinion of thinking that Voyager is not a good looking ship but this was a good looking ship I liked it I think they did a great job with it um I thought the whole Starfleet thing in the sand was a little gimmicky and I'm not totally sure that you could see that through a crazy storm that is so bad it interferes with your ability to transport so I went into the commercial for right after that happened a little bit grumpy um, and I needed to calm myself down. But but you're right. You know, when you say that they had a hard job here of trying to explain to new potential new fans, you know, what are the rules of this universe while also dealing with people like us who are going to be grumpy and nitpick everything? It's this classic, like, how do you teach to the middle problem? So you got to be a little bit forgiving. 
Yeah, I had some conceptual problems with with this gimmick as well, but I did like seeing the Star Trek, the Starfleet emblem there in the sand, and I thought this was a cool way to get introduced to the ship. It's it's different from what we get in in most Star Trek, where we get the we get a sort of minute and a half musical interlude while we fly around the ship, uh, introducing someone who's coming on board for the first time to the ship and all of its specs, like we do get in the Voyager pilot, like we get in uh, the original series and and basically just about every uh, original series movie yeah but you know i like my specs i hope they give us some specs you're right we didn't get any specs now i'm like oh where are my specs i want them what's the crew compliment um (laughs) uh but uh i will say that like also i don't know i don't think you watched a lot of the trailers because we were trying to go into this blind and and you know just watch the show and take it at what it is but one of the trailers definitely they splice the you should have your own command and then the ship appearing magically out of the clouds together such that it looks like um the captain is like surprise i got you a ship <laughs> and this is like <laughs> the reveal um, she's the oprah winfrey of starfleet um and and i thought that that was kind of weird and dumb so i was a little bit relieved to see that that wasn't actually what was happening um in the show so i was like oh okay cool it's just a ship everything's fine it's not like a present um so so yeah but I, but the ship was gorgeous the visuals in the show are gorgeous I thought it was a little gimmicky. I rolled my eyes going into the commercial break, but I I was still ready to be okay with this. That's where I was at this point. I was like, I'm trying really hard. It doesn't feel great right now, but I'm going to keep trying. That's, That's how I felt in the moment. It's an exciting visual to launch us into the credits. And I'm, I love a good credit sequence. And so this is perhaps the thing I was anticipating and dreading the most was the Mm -hmm. opening credits. And, um, what, what did you think of these opening credits, these drawings of classic Trek objects, such as the a communicator, the Batleth, phaser, et cetera? Did, did, what did this do for you? So had you not seen it? I had not seen it. Okay. So I'm the worst. I saw it. I cheated. And I saw it before the episode premiered. And I know we said we weren't going to do that. So don't kick me off the Star Trek podcast. But um, I, so I had actually listened to the, the song the the music um for the intro without looking at it paired with the credits and i was like "Uh, i don't know maybe and then when i saw it paired with the credits i was actually quite happy i enjoyed this and i this is gonna sound crazy and it might alienate a lot of people but when i first heard this the new theme song my immediate reaction was like well this isn't as good as the enterprise theme song (laughs) Which is like the most hated theme song, you know, in the Star Trek universe, but it's my favorite and I got really used to it. Um, And I kept making all these jokey comparisons to that song. But when they, when they, when it's together in the title sequence, it actually reminds me a lot of the Enterprise opening sequence because it's got those like the, the visual of it with like the maps and the the drawings and stuff reminded me a little bit of Enterprise. So I was like, ooh, they threw something in for me and I felt happy about it. Yeah, I think you're right. If anything, th- these credits look more like the Enterprise credits than they do any any others. And th- but this is the first Star Trek credits that we've we get that don't have you know an actual sort of model of the Starfleet vessel flying around. We just have these uh, sort of Art Deco maybe Art Nouveau sort of drawings of, of the ship. I really thought it was beautiful. Uh, I, yeah. I feel like I could have watched it quite a bit. I was not maybe as into the music as you were. I, I thought the music was kind of lackluster, really. And and I always love the the 
sort of big symphonic openings of Star Trek. I knew we weren't going to get that. That's not the style that we we do credits sequences in now. And just, you know, so as a 2017 Star Trek credit sequence could go, I thought this was pretty great. Yeah, and I think it paid service in the beginning and the end of the song to other Star Trek themes, right? Um, yes. And, and also, I agree that it's not my favorite, but in the middle, I think what they were going for was to give it an epic kind of warlike feel, like something you might feel like the score to some sort of like a war movie or something that was set in 2017, right? They were trying to make the music feel this, this plot with the Klingons that's going to be happening um, throughout the, the show, I assume. And I think they did achieve that feeling. So I'll, I'll give them that. I will say that like my first go is like, how am I going to hum along to this? You know, I just want to belt it. But that's how I felt about the Deep Space Nine opening credits, which go on <laughs> forever. And now I like have words that I wrote to the whole thing. Um, so I, I think with time, we'll feel differently. Um, I will also say that I really I'm a total sucker for when um, motion matches up with music perfectly. It just feels so good. And there were so many moments in, in the title sequences where the images responded directly to notes in the music and that felt really good to watch i enjoyed that a lot oh i didn't actually notice that i'm gonna have to go pay closer attention to them uh right when we're done recording i'll check it out again it was really well timed it was beautifully done well with the credit sequence over now we get a genuine star trek voiceover it's uh first officer's log may 11th 2256 so nine years before the start of the original series the Shenzhou is at the edge of Federation space to investigate a damaged interstellar relay, and the question is whether the damage was caused by an accident or by a someone. And uh, the science officer, a Kelpian named Saru, thinks it was definitely a someone. I have to say that you nailed it by saying that when Michael talks, it's kind of weird. And I think it's supposed to be. Very emotive actress, very emotive person, as we will um, come to find um, somewhat problematically but talks like a Vulcan and because there's no visual indication that this is a Vulcan, it's confusing and it feels weird, but I think that it's meant to feel that way. So I'm going to try to like, let it make me feel that way that that contrast is supposed to be there. But yeah, I thought this opening log was good a little bit when they were like, star date this. Oh, PS in earth time. That's this other thing. I was like, okay, (laughs) fine. (laughs) I guess we should explain it for some people, but do we really need to? But yeah, uh, yeah, I enjoyed it. And I and the Kelpian looks great. Um, I don't think we know he's a Kelpian yet. So when we get to the part where we learn a little bit more about him, I'll talk more about him. But he looks really good. He looks better in the show and animated and moving and talking um, and with his personality and his voice than I expected him to just looking at pictures of the show. So I was happy. I mean, there's a couple of things I think we should talk about in this in this scene. Uh, one of them I'll, I'll do first, and this is a line from Burnham's log. It's her, her last line where she says, all life is born from chaos and destruction, which is seems a bit melodramatic for your commander's log, your first officer's log. <laughs> um, <laughs> but but I just wonder, is is this the theme of the show? I don't know. But I will say that I did roll my eyes a bit when this was happening. It felt there were a few moments, especially particularly out of the mouth of Michael, that felt really heavy handed and contrived. And this was one of them. And I had kind of forgotten about it. Did it feel that way to you? Um, it did. It did feel a little heavy handed. I thought it was a nice line. I, I'm not sure that it's really true, but I did like the idea of of uh, a person 
you know, being on a ship at a binary star system and appreciating the beauty and the, the poetry of, of the universe and, and commenting on it. You know, I think that we are going to see that this is something of the theme of the show as we're seeing kind of the birth of the Klingon state as we know it uh, in almost all other Star Trek and that it is going to come out of chaos and destruction. See, that's a much more eloquent and generous reading than me just being like, ugh, what? Um, so I'm glad you're here. <laughs> um, yeah, fair, fair. I like that. That's beautiful. I like that. I buy into it. Yeah. Good point. So the other thing we should probably talk about, Valerie, is the uniforms, the Starfleet ah, uniforms. Right. I know. It's just like we could spend the entire podcast talking about all these things. Uh, I gonna let you go first. I've gone first on everything. I quite like the uniforms. I have always loved the Enterprise uniforms because they looked like real real uniforms that real astronauts would wear. They didn't look really all that different from people um, I, I knew in the Navy. Uh, I, when I was in the army, I should say. And and I just, they looked functional. They always, uh, the color scheme looked great. And these uniforms here in Discovery look like an update of that, that they are kind of meeting, I don't know, meeting uh, Enterprise and TOS sort of, I don't know, not at the halfway point, maybe at the three quarter point where they are, they're sleeker, but they still got this blue uh, and they do have a color scheme where right? we see uh, sort of on the sides, there's probably a technical term for that, but on the sides and some bits of around the shoulders that there is a color scheme. There is is gold for the command structure, which is perfect TOS, and then sort of a silver, actually, it turns out for the science, though it, it might be supposed to be kind of a light blue. It just looked silver to me on my screen. No, I think it's silver. Yeah, and I think it's it, this. I will say that it was hard to tell on screen, but it's a copper that is for operations engineering. Oh, I I didn't notice it at all. Mm -hmm. There's actually three. There are three, just like we standardly have three sets of colors. They replaced what would typically be, I guess, the red maybe in TOS. Um, although that gets into the confusing red shirt stuff, but you have uh, copper as the third color. So the gold, the silver, and the copper are a little bit hard to to tell apart on the screen at this point. But yeah, I, I definitely did not notice the copper at all. I, I'll have to I'll have to look look I'll have to pay more attention to that next time. But what what are we going to call them now? Copper sides. <laughs> well, we'll see who who like who is the one that always ends up dying, right? Copper sides. <laughs> yeah, look, I could do better. Uh <laughs> yeah, but it's okay. We all could all the time. Yeah, I think that you're right. I think that what they were going for um, and what they said they were going for is something that was inspired from the Enterprise uniforms, but that um, doesn't do a disservice to the TOS uniforms. I, I do think it is worth saying that, like, I know we want new uniforms and I like having them and it's fun, but are uniforms going to change that much in 10 years? Is that a thing that happens in the Army, Glenn? Yeah, it, it, it is definitely a thing that can happen uh, in the military. They can change okay. very dramatically. Yeah, all, right. all, of, okay. all of a sudden. All right. Okay, good. I don't know how I became the super negative one in this episode, but thank you for steering me in the right direction. You know, I miss Star Trek uniforms that are made out of a soft sweater fabric, but I think they did a great job with the design. It did. It looked really cool and, yeah, reminded me of Enterprise, and I have to say I was grateful to get rid of the weird space jumpsuit in that horrible, wrinkly Enterprise fabric, so... Definitely a step up. In our next scene, Burnham goes to Captain Georgiou's ready room to suggest that this whole thing with the damaged relay is sort of a trap. 
And uh, something I really enjoyed about the captain's ready room is that the, she's listening to music and she has decor all around that are, are non-Western. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I didn't notice that. That's a great point because, you know, you know, as always happens in conversation, instead of listening to you, I was thinking about what I was going to say next. And what I was going to say next was, hey, we should probably talk about how we have a Chinese captain. So because I think it's awesome and it makes total sense for 2017 and it's not something we've had before. We had Sulu was of Japanese descent. Um, Harry Kim on Voyager was of Korean descent. It's just great. And also, you know, the name of the ship being a reference to the Chinese space program. So I was like, yes, we're getting more representation of of a new culture um, that has not previously been represented in the Star Trek universe and that maybe doesn't get enough screen time um, in general in, in kind of the Hollywood setting. So I was really excited about that. Yeah, it's fantastic, and I think I think Michelle Yeoh does a really great job here as as Captain Georgiou. And in in the very next scene, we see her on the bridge for the first time, and she has a real uh, authoritative, real commanding presence uh, on the on the bridge. Uh, she really just takes charge uh, of this yeah. scene. I know it's. I'm really getting ahead of myself, and maybe this will, you know, uh, be inflammatory, but. Really, she really quickly became one of my favorite all-time captains. She's great. She's great in command. She's got personality. She's not. She's she's balanced. She's not overly nurturing or overly harsh. And I love that she has an accent. I love that they allowed someone on a show to have an accent, and they didn't have to subtitle her or something because they thought we couldn't understand her. Like I, they're just letting her be, and I think it's great. That's really quite nice. Of course, they did let Patrick Stewart have his accent, but he should have had a French accent, right? And and, 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 and <laughs> Captain Janeway was originally going to have a French accent as well, or be played by a French actress. And yeah, so this is this is the first time that we we get a captain with a with a thick sort of non Anglo accent and I, I do think it works very well. I'm glad that um, that was also represented in the decor of her office um, and it wasn't just you know full of Shakespeare as much as we might like that and Miss Picard so good catch <laughs> I'll, I'll have to look at that in the rewatch but uh, but okay so we both love the captain what what happens next? Yeah so on the bridge for the first time and uh, she gets a report from the science officer Seru who has found an object out in space, close to one of the binary stars at the center of the system. But it's in a sensor dead zone, so there's no way to identify it or even see it clearly. But fortunately, the captain keeps a telescope in her ready room so they can get a better look. Uh, but they still can't identify it. And we, we learn here also that they can't send a shuttlecraft because of the asteroid belt in the system. And so here's where our plot thickens when Michael Burnham volunteers to go out in nothing more than a spacesuit and a thruster pack. Uh, and of course, there's going to be a hitch, which is that given the radiation from the binary stars, she can only be out there for 20 minutes. Yeah. So again, with the eye of like, we're explaining how Star Trek works. And also we're reminding you that we know how Star Trek works and we care. Um, they were like, there are shuttles and sometimes there's interference with things and that could be a plot device. And and so that was fun. And the telescope scene was fun. They were trying to look at stuff. And then we have really just a classic Star Trek scene where someone ridiculously important on the ship like the second in command is like, hey, um, no, I really think you should let me do something super irresponsible that is clearly going to go wrong and might kill me. And then the captain's like, okay. Like, <laughs> and it's just like, I don't think this is how decisions should get made. It's how like drama happens. But, but yeah, this happens in Star Trek all the time. And I kind of loved it. 
Well, and we just covered the Next Generation episode, Suspicions, the exact plot right. of which is about flying too close to a star without protection from radiation. Right. And how it's, like, it's absurd. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Send a probe. Um, yeah. If you listen to our last episode, it's like there has to be another way. Um, yeah. It's, <laughs> it's true. They don't address the idea of sending a probe here. So they clearly did not listen to our last episode. Uh, we'll have to we'll have to send an email to the screenwriters uh, suggesting that they should listen to our commentary before they write any more Star Trek. I already sent several handwritten letters in crayon, but I haven't gotten a response yet. But yeah, but I think mostly the point of this is like, hey, thruster packs are a thing. Let's go watch someone fly through space. Yeah, and I, I was very excited about it. And so we, we cut from this to the crew bantering on the bridge while everyone is preparing for Burnham's thruster ride. And and we see a lot of moving parts here. And we, we get a real sense that, that this is technology at work, not magic. And this is a really awesome detail that I loved because so much of Star Trek and largely because of budget technology just happens because of magic we don't ever see the moving parts and so I really really enjoyed seeing them here can you remind me is this the is this the first scene where we get some humor where there's like some joking between the people on the bridge um, I think we've seen we've seen a little bit of banter between Burnham and Saru so far which which, which has been pretty good their, their their dynamic is really good I think someone pointed out to me um that they felt a little bit frustrated by Saru having like this one personality trait in the way that Star Trek does monocultures. But given that Star Trek does do monocultures and they're there to point something out about humanity and serve as a contrast, you know, if we just like buy in and accept that that's what Star Trek does and there's something kind of great in it, I think they did a really good job with him where we got something new, a new type of alien monoculture personality that is very interesting and they gave it a, a little bit of a backstory which was rich that I enjoyed uh so I I found him I didn't find him gimmicky I found him very interesting I'm, I'm getting I'm looking forward to getting to know this species more um and hopefully we get the chance to do it but I but with regard to the technology I think that I was I couldn't get into it until at, at this point in the show because it looked too good and maybe that sounds weird but like I want Star Trek to look kind of crappy. Like, I know it as looking campy and a little low budget, and that's part of the fun. And it was like, oh, this looks too good. This can't be Star Trek. It looks really good. <laughs> and it was putting me off. But when they started doing funny banter, when they wrote the campiness into the dialogue that was happening on the bridge in a couple of these scenes, I was like, oh, okay, cool. I'm home. They did it. They they really melded this new fancy modern 2017 look with some classic Star Trek stuff. And it calmed me down and, and made me feel comforted. Yeah, and the banter between Burnham and Saru feels a lot to me like the banter between McCoy and Spock. Definitely. It is very, yeah, if you go back to TOS, everyone is always just like hammering on Spock. But um, but yeah, yeah, fair. It did, I just I think the the banter scenes and the dialogue scenes on the bridge were really were really good and helped me get to a good happy Star Trek place. Well, with the the crew prepped for the the thruster pack ride, it's time for Burnham to take off, and she uh, jumps out into space and navigates with uh, with the thruster pack, just like motion picture Spock does, except that she's having a lot of fun. Right, and I think that's that's very important because, like, in a couple minutes, when she gets to the thing she gets to, she's going to have again this voiceover that feels very stilted, feels very Vulcan. But on her way there, we get this scene of her 
laughing and exhilarated and and i think we're meant to be constantly picking up on this contrast with her and almost like the fact that being raised on vulcan a lot of these things were probably repressed and she has reacted by really taking a lot of pleasure in her emotional side and going a little bit farther uh with it than maybe is always good which comes up later in the plot. Yeah, and this is one of the things that that Seru does for her as a foil with his emphasis on fear and being cautious. She gets to sort of double down on the thrill of discovery and adventure. Yeah, there was this that was that great line. I don't know if it is if it's now or if it's later in the episode where she's like, we came this far, we got to go figure it out. And he was like, oh, excuse me, here I was thinking we weren't the Enterprise. You know, <laughs> like here I was thinking we were like on a like audit mission of an interstellar relay um and you just want to be kirk i guess but uh <laughs> fine and i thought that was hilarious because we're not on the enterprise the mission of the ship is not to discover and she's like no but i'm gonna do it anyway so that was fun that, that made me laugh it, it felt like they got me yeah it's really it's really it's really great i think i think we get to see quite a bit out of uh, in her character here on her way to the the strange object she loses comms almost right away uh, but she arrives safely there uh, this object is old and beautiful Beautiful, and it looks almost to be sculpted rather than manufactured. And, and here, Valerie, is where we get this line that you were alluding to, where she says the only the only thing she can say is "Wow." What a great line! <laughs> yeah, I I found this line actually a little bit flat for me. I, I get what it was attempting to do, but uh, it's attempting to do all the things we were just talking about. But she delivers it in her Vulcan voice, and so <laughs> I just like I don't believe it. I know the problem. I think I, and. Maybe they'll find their footing or or maybe we're meant to feel this way. But when she's in her Vulcan voice, I just want her to say Vulcan stuff. And what throws me off is that she uses her Vulcan voice to also express human stuff. Right. Like Spock wouldn't fly around this thing going, oh, my gosh, it's so beautiful. That's not a thing he would say. But here she is making that kind of more human observation, more emotional observation, having an emotional reaction to the beauty of the object, but in the Vulcan voice. And I'm still getting used to it. Yeah, same here. And I, it, I did find it jarring. It was probably my chief, I don't know, complaints not, right? But it was, it was, it was, the, thing, uh, that, that, it was the thing that most often sort of drew me out of the story, that put me into a, a critical mode rather than an enjoyment mode. But still, this was a great scene, and, and, and the object is beautiful. Uh, she lands on it and triggers a motion response, and then suddenly she isn't alone. A Klingon warrior in space armor is there, ready to batleth her. I just wanted to say the space armor looks great. I thought he looked really cool. These were beautiful shots. I loved, they did a great job of using the the point of view through her, like, I don't know, like tech cam, you know, her cam that reads what's in the world and tells you what it is to tell us some stuff real quick without having to spend too much time on it. Like, this is a Klingon. Look, that's what a Klingon insignia looks like. This is what a famous Klingon weapon looks like. Here's the name of it on the screen real quick. I thought they did a great job getting all that in in such a short amount of time. All of that stuff was awesome. And I in particular liked that the Klingon emblem on the armor was the exact place uh, on the suit of armor where I actually have that emblem tattooed on me. Back in the future, the Klingon warrior attacks, and Burnham ignites her thrusters, which shoves the Batleth into the Klingon warrior and, and sends her careening back toward the Shenzhou. Now, I had to watch this a couple times. Do you think she killed him on purpose, or she just put on her thrusters in defense and that's what happened? To be honest, I found this scene actually visually pretty confusing. I think it's meant to be, so that's not a criticism. I did have to watch it several times to see what was going on and and didn't fully understand until she tells us. I it didn't occur to me until now, but I think you the, what you're what you're suggesting Valerie is that 
perhaps the explanation she gives is not true. You're right. Visually, the scene does not, you cannot go back and look at it and figure out exactly what happened. And I I think they probably did it on purpose, especially because, you know, as we find out later, she is the only one that can tell this story. Like, the visuals of it were not captured and, you know, the Klingon is dead. So we have to go off of her word and her memory. And we do, too, as an audience, because we're not given a clear visual, which is a really, I think, an interesting way to do it. But my first thought was, oh, my gosh, she freaked out and hit her thrusters, thrusters and ran into the sky. And, you know, she didn't mean to do that. And we're going to have to deal with her wrestling with the guilt of having killed someone. But I think that as we learn more about her and kind of basically like the PTSD she's going through right now, it seems a little bit more likely that that it was kind of intentional in a way that she was overcome with with emotions that maybe she couldn't control. But under the control of those emotions kind of meant to do this. You, that's a great point, Valerie, and we're going to get there in a few scenes, so I'm glad you brought that up, and we'll, we'll, we'll discuss it more when we get there. So at this point, we, we go to a commercial uh, uh, with this, this tense drama happening, and we come back. We are on board the Klingon object or maybe a Klingon ship. It's not clear yet. And uh, this, this Klingon uh, who opened the show for us, who it turns out is some kind of religious leader, is conducting the funeral of the warrior that Burnham just killed, uh, someone being labeled as the torchbearer. And and I thought this scene looked very cool. And uh, I have to say also that I absolutely loved that they gave us the Klingon death roar. That was cool. And I found myself like pausing and explaining to the person next to me. I was like, so for Klingons, it's a good thing to die in battle. And I was like giving my my little (laughs) spiel. Um, Visually, though, I'm curious, what do you think is going I I, I was getting a lot of like Egyptian vibes, ancient, ancient Egyptian vibes. Is that normally how Klingons kind of are aesthetically represented? Were you getting those feelings, too? I was. Klingons are very interesting, right? We meet them in, uh, in, in TOS. They are space Russians, space Soviets, perhaps, is the better way to put it. But then come TNG and, and, and Deep Space Nine and Voyager, they are space samurai. And now it looks like, yeah, they're, they're going to be something like space Egyptians, uh, that, that they're really doubling down perhaps on the, the culture of, of ancestor veneration and kind of an obsession with death and immortality. So we get this real lavish looking uh, funeral scene that's, that's full of gold and, and turquoise, uh, really definitely looking like uh, this, 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 this coffin looking like an Egyptian sarcophagus. And then we see in, the, in this scene, though it's, it's visually a little bit unclear, but they send this coffin outside, out into space, and attach it to the hull of a ship where we see it's not the only one, that there are hundreds, perhaps thousands of coffins on on this spaceship. I will say, yeah, in a little bit, right, we get that line where she's like, oh, it's covered in coffins. And I was like, oh, cool. Like, not like I like things covered in coffins. Like, obviously, (laughs) I'm disturbed by this. But I was also like, oh, that's a cool, that's a cool design idea. This is interesting. This makes sense for Klingons for me. I was like, oh, whoa. It is covered in coffins. And yeah, and I think that it really, you know, they're trying to get to the point that like dying is a good thing. If you die in battle and you're a Klingon, that's great. We're not going to like, they're mad that someone got murdered and they're going to do something about it, but they're not upset that he's dead. They're like proud of him for dying in battle. And, you know, keeping the coffins around is one way to show that. Having the the death roar is another way to show that. You're right with this... um, the the soviet and the samurai which is also interesting too because in tos you're right they were conceived of as as the soviet enemy but their aesthetic 
was written into the script and this is problematic language but to look asian like that's what the the scripts said not that there is one way to look that but it was the 60s and they had some problems (laughs) so it's interesting that that you know they were meant to look that way when they were russian and then later they're samurai and it's all kind of a little bit confusing and i think we would do well to remember that the klingons do change a lot in other places in the star trek universe and like to be you know accepting of what's happening here and appreciative of the new direction they're taking it in with our klingon interlude over we show up in sickbay where an unconscious burnham is dreaming about her childhood on vulcan we see her at school learning about klingons uh, while we learn that her parents were killed in fact by a klingon raid on a human vulcan science outpost at Daktari alpha I actually thought this was a pretty powerful scene. I think it was a a good way to explain the plot and to see this kid struggling with his past and stuck between their two identities. I, I thought it was good. Am I correct that the visual here of the Vulcan Science Academy, it comes from the new Star Trek movies? So, yes, that's where it comes from most recently. I think we actually see this in the animated series, though. Ah, okay. That's where it comes from. Because I thought it was interesting, especially because the new movies uh, are, in, are in a different, they're not the canonical timeline, that they would bring that design back in. But I also thought, hey, you know what? Probably a lot of people are watching this because they liked the movies. Let's bring them in. Yeah, absolutely. And and all of the, the relationship there between these two timelines is, is, of course, quite complicated. Something that I really liked in this scene here that really is paying attention to the canonical sort of the canonical timeline is that this science outpost is not labeled a federation science outpost but is explained as a human vulcan outpost which uh, uh really is a nice uh, homage to the original series where the federation is not yet an amalgamation of a number of different uh, of different humanoid species it is a it is exactly what it says on the tin is a, it is a federation of distinct cultures distinct species that sometimes cooperate that that was that was really good you're right the language of it was careful yeah and and of course we can't let this scene go by without pointing out that um hey um sarek's here it's spock's dad what spock's dad has another kid that's even more human than spock man life is hard for sarek because he just wants a vulcan kid you should probably stop marrying ladies that are human um (laughs) but uh but yeah so we still don't know and in fact in this whole episode it's not totally explain what's going on but from this scene we're we are meant to um, surmise that her parents were killed while they were living on this outpost i think we're meant that to think that she is actually the sole survivor of the Klingon attack on this outpost and that Sarek um, has taken her in and is raising her on Vulcan. Which points to another really, you know, significant character in Star Trek, and, and that's Worf, who suffers the exact same fate, except that it's Romulans attacking a Klingon outpost, uh, leading him to be raised on Earth as, a, as an orphan and, and straddling two cultures as a result of it. And so this is a really great homage here. I, I think it's going to bring some interesting things out. So we leave the flashback, and we're, we're back in the sick bay, and Burnham wakes up. She's got internal damage, but she needs to see the captain about the Klingons she killed. And we meet, I, I don't know, the Anne, maybe, unnamed doctor here in white and silver. I was a little dismayed at the lack of a real doctor character in this episode. Possibly this is the doctor on the ship, and we're going to get to know more about him, but maybe not. I'm going to call it right now, and I could be totally wrong, that I think we're going to get into a lot of Voyager stuff. I think mm-hmm. like a lot of the things about this pilot map onto the Voyager pilot for me. One is that they're doing a great job with an epic and interesting scope that draws you in, and they're doing a great job with 
new types of people being represented and giving us new fun aliens. Those were all things the Voyager pilot did really well. So far, this Discovery pilot is doing them as well. I also think that we shouldn't get too attached to anybody. They were going to have a Voyager style. Not everybody's going to be here for that long. And we're going to get some new people as a result of that shakeup, whatever it is. So if you remember in the Voyager pilot, we get, you know, a couple scenes with the smarmy doctor that eh, doesn't stick around very long. I think something similar might be happening here. It definitely echoes the the Voyager pilot. I did like the the doctor uniform, the medical uniform here. It's white and and silver, um, just to, to do more uniform talk. Uh, really quite liked it. Hope we see more of that. They're doing a good job with playing with um, what thing, what what we from a 2017 vantage point might imagine that something looks like at this point in the future. And doctors wear white, so I, I think they're they're weaving a lot of things in very well. All right. Well, Burnham runs to the bridge where she tries to tell her story, but no one believes her because it turns out that no one has seen a Klingon in a hundred years, or to put it in our terms, since Star Trek Enterprise. And also classic Star Trek move here, uh, which Saru does a great job as the voice of pointing out. He's like the voice of the the plot holes <laughs> which, <laughs> and, and the like ridiculousness, which I love. Like he's kind of saying some of the things that I am thinking, but that also I'm glad are there because I like that Star Trek you know, has inconsistencies and is ridiculous sometimes. But he's like, um, you're like three minutes from dying, like literally just like falling apart and dying excuse me, anyone on the bridge, like, do you care? And the, and they're like, no, let her keep talking. And I'm like, guys, <laughs> like, stop. Like, there's so many, like, silent parts where Burnham is just standing there. And I'm like, get away. Go. You're going to die. This maps onto the Voyager pilot as well, because she does have this radiation poisoning. At the end of this scene, she's sort of told to go to sick bay, And we don't ever see her back in sick bay again. This is the next time we see her, she's fine. And this yeah. is just like Harry Kim and Belana Torres. Their sickness just gets kind of cured off screen in the Voyager pilot once it's done at being a plot device. So Burnham insists that she really did see a Klingon and that she, in fact, that she killed a Klingon. But of course, her video is damaged, so she can't prove it. So there's a bit more banter about it. But she uses the captain's first name and and that turns out to be enough to convince her. And so here now we get our first red alert of the series. And, and I was very excited for that. The person I was watching with not knowing the Star Trek universe well, they were like, what? Why did the captain listen to her? This is ridiculous. What? And I was like, oh, no, it was so tender. The captain is like, okay, I trust you. I know this seems crazy, but I trust you. And it pointed to the bond between the two of them in a very powerful way for me in this very small scene. And um, and I appreciated that. Also, you know, we haven't said anything about how she keeps calling um, Burnham number one. And, you know, at first I was like, oh, there's only one number one. And then I was like, oh, wait, I kind of like this. <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a touch that I really I really did like. And the use of the first name here calls back to the, the, the second part of the teaser, which is where we first hear her called number one. But then but the captain actually calls Michael Burnham by her first name there in a, in a in a moment of seriousness in a sort of please trust me moment. And so this this scene here, the, the inverse of that or the reverse of it is a nice callback. Yeah. And I do think that the episode is going to do a lot to destroy what they've built, what I'm about to say that they've built. Um, the second half of this episode, or just, I guess, the last 10 minutes of it really ruined this for me. But this is where we're learning, you know, first officers and captains have a very special bond. This is a relationship that is complicated and deep and longstanding, and we are meant to understand and respect that between these types of characters. But Saru is still not buying it, and uh, 
you know, he says, look, if there's if there are really are Klingons here, then we should get the heck out. Uh, but of course, the captain needs to know what the Federation is dealing with. She can't just turn around and run. And and Burnham suggests targeting the phase cannons on the object, not to destroy it, but to, to flush out any more Klingons. And, and her trick works. And a big a really big Klingon warship decloaks right in front of him. And it looked awesome. It was cool. <laughs> I, I mean, that's, that's, there's almost nothing more to say than that because it just was so, it was just awesome. It was so menacing and, and large. It, it was one of the coolest Klingon ship decloaks I've ever seen. So we cut to cut to commercial, and when we come back again, we are with the Klingons, and and now it's clear that that where we're seeing the Klingons is actually on board this ship and not on board the the object. Uh, and we learn here again that this this religious leader is here to make a prophecy come true. He says, "When the light of Kalis shines in the night sky, other Klingons will come to see it." And uh, we have here an albino Klingon of low birth who wants to replace uh, the man that Burnham killed as the next torchbearer. He wants to be the one to light the beacon. Again, they squeezed in so much great stuff, you know, when they have the brother, the next of kin of the Klingon that had just died, be like, he needs to step up. And then that scene, one, reinforces that there's there's like a, a family line thing here that is really important with Klingons. But it also tells us that we're kind of dealing with like, I don't know, like a... A crazy cult you know the way that character that refuses to be the torchbearer says yeah about lighting that torch um i believe you but is anyone else gonna believe you i think they might just think you're crazy and, and that was interesting that gave me some more context i found that really really helpful and yeah but i will say that then we get like what feels like a very long scene where the albino klingon worships the lord of light <laughs> yes <laughs> absolutely <laughs> Was that just me? <laughs> oh, no. I think that was everybody. Yeah. And then I said in my head, I was like, call us Khaleesi. I was like, uh-oh. <laughs> yeah. But look, there's only so much you can do with messianic monotheism. It's either fire or it's water. You know, it's got to be one or the other. <laughs> I hope this. I hope that's our new tagline. So th- I did find this interesting because we do spend a lot of time with with this albino Klingon, as you say. Uh, and while, so, while this shows us quite a bit about the Klingons, I thought it was setting up this character to be a very important person. And while we don't know for sure, I think that the inference here is that he he's going to die when the beacon is lit. And so we're not going to ever see this character again. Is that how is that is that how you read it? That didn't come to mind when I was watching it. It's it's probably true, given the crazy amount of light that shines out of that thing. All right. Well, we are we're we're almost at that scene. Now, back on the Shenzhou Bridge, Saru has figured out that the Klingon ship is covered in coffins, uh, which we as the viewers already knew. But he tells us that some of them have bones that are more than a thousand years old. So really reinforcing this uh, significance of death here in the Klingon culture. But that's all just kind of there as decor. What Saru really wants is Burnham to convince the captain to withdraw because he senses death. And he tells us that his species is selected for that trait, the ability to sense death. I thought that he has an interesting backstory. They gave us a a new alien and and I was really on board when he was like, look, I'm from this planet where there are two options and you're either predator or prey. And I was bred to be prey. That's what happened. That's the history of my people. That was so interesting. And then also we were bred to sense death. I was like, okay, what? (laughs) 
How many things are you for? Well, I think that the sensing of death comes from being prey, right? That if you're prey and you're going to survive, you have to, it, it's because you have a preternatural ability to sense, sense that something is stalking you, sense that death is, a, is about to arrive and that you should get out. And that it's the ones that don't have that sense, of course, that become the food for the predators. And so that's right. what he, and, and he's describing it here in these sort of natural selection terms, which I do think is very interesting. You're describing an evolution with the result being that the, the the prey half of the species can sense death. But I feel like the way he says it is that he was bred that way. That's the language he uses. So I think what confused me is that I don't understand why the predators would breed the prey that way. Unless I guess it makes it a more fun like hunting game for them or something. It just it felt a little bit like it was too many things at once shoved in to make a point. No, you're absolutely right. He does say breed or bred, and he does say he also says biologically determined. Although I changed that to the uh, more correct term of of selected. I think this is just an instance actually of of Star Trek writers not being very good at science stuff. <laughs> Um, so I just I'm not sure that they understood all the implications of what they were saying, but but maybe maybe we'll find out. Maybe they do know exactly what they're saying. I'm very interested in this notion. If if he you, as he as you suggest, Valerie, he is in of a species that was intentionally bred by another sentient species, a sentient species of predators. Where did they go? How did how did uh, how did Saru and his people uh, come to come to sort of get interstellar flight and join the Federation? I would allow, I want to know all of that. I want these answers. So I'm looking forward to finding out. So in the next scene, Captain Georgiou is in her ready room talking to an admiral via some sort of subspace hologram phone thing. And he tells her that the Federation vessel Europa will be there in two hours and that they should do nothing at all until that ship arrives. And so, of course, we know immediately that that's not going to happen. They hang up on their phone call. Burnham and the captain now discuss leaving, but the captain lays out some stakes, saying that there's an Andorian colony nearby that the Klingons might attack if they just flee. Burnham is convinced that the Klingons will definitely attack, but their conversation is interrupted by a blinding light shining through the window. And this is the the torchbearer doing his job. Yeah. So and I think it is important. We don't have to touch too much on it now, um, but I think we should notice it. um, And I hope it comes up again. One thing that happens in this scene that is normal for Star Trek in a lot of ways. It's kind of the point of the series, but the way that it was made explicit um, and the words used felt very important for our particular historical moment in 2017. We have an open discussion about race and culture in this scene coming out of the mouth of our first main female black character and coming out of the mouth of that character in 2017. So I think it's really significant. And... She says something along the lines of, you don't understand the Klingons. This is in, it's in their nature. She's basically saying it's in their DNA. And the Admiral comes back and he says, you know, I'm really surprised that, to hear you of all people saying that. And, and Glenn, I know you said that you, what you heard was like, you anthropologist should be better educated. But I think what was really being pointed at here was you should really, you as the person with the past of being a human raised on Vulcan and understanding what it what it's like to be divided between cultures, but to still have like a biology at play and all these complicated factors, you should understand this and not be making comments like this. And she comes back with this line that sounds great. And I'm so glad it was said, which is like, let you need to be careful. Do not confuse race and culture. And I really hope 
that that becomes a theme that we get more explicit discussions about this on a network television show i think it's fantastic but i do think there's a huge writing flaw where two seconds ago she was confusing race and culture (laughs) Um, (laughs) and then she's the one that says don't confuse race and culture so it was not perfectly done i had some problems with it in that vein but i'm hoping we're going to get some important need to have these conversations in 2017 stuff. And that's what Star Trek is for, right? That's why we have a a black female communications officer in the middle of the civil rights movement on TOS and a Russian officer is, is to have these things pointed out and have these important conversations. And so I was glad to see this, but there was a huge writing flaw in it for me. I don't know if you felt that way, Glenn. Like you, I really loved this scene. Star Trek has a huge problem with race and culture. And I don't just mean in the way it depicts humans. In fact, perhaps less so in the way it depicts humans, where it's consciously trying to to promote equality and to, and, and to fight bigotry. But it, as a, a result of its dependence on on alien monocultures, it does also always equate race and culture as being the same thing. Worf is a is a real great representation of this. Now, of course, I love Worf, but when we meet Worf, he's he's a Klingon guy on the bridge. Later, of course, we learn that he's raised on Earth by humans, and it I never quite understood then what exactly it is that makes him a Klingon if he grew up on Earth. But Star Trek doesn't have this problem. He is biologically a Klingon, and then that's going to also make him culturally a Klingon. Um, Deep Space Nine does a much better job with Worf of complicating this issue, issue, which I think is great. I think that's a, uh, an important step on the road that gets us to this line here in Star Trek Discovery. But but Star Trek has this problem all over the place. If your if your DNA is X, then your culture also has to be X, even if you were raised by Y. Yeah. And, and, you know, this, like I said earlier, the monoculture quote unquote problem allows us to explore humanity um, in an interesting way. And, you know, this is a show made by 2017 humans for 2017 humans. So we should be exploring humanity. But yeah, this conflict that exists in the Star Trek universe is we have theoretically this place where everybody's equal. It's this utopian future, um, you know, infinite diversity and infinite combinations, except everything is still really problematically human centric. And we're just going to make fun of anyone who's not human for not being human enough all the time. And, you know, and really humans are the best is what comes out of a lot, <laughs> a lot of Star Trek. And that makes sense because it's, you know, again, it's it's made by humans for humans, but it doesn't totally line up with the philosophy of this future Star Trek universe and that's a pre-existing problem but um I like that I felt that they kind of they were trying to call it out like hey we get it we know maybe we'll talk about it and and I was appreciative of that even if the scene had some flaws Nick Myers who who wrote of course the Wrath of Khan and also the Undiscovered Country has been a big part of of the production of Star Trek Discovery here. And in the Undiscovered Country, of course, he puts this exact issue into the mouths of the into the mouth of the, the the daughter of the Klingon Chancellor when she refers to the Federation as a Homo Sapiens only club and says that even our language betrays this that we talk about human rights. You know, we, we might we mean perhaps humanoid rights or sentient rights, but we can't help ourselves. We just say human rights, even when we're, we're talking about something that's that's meant to be for everyone, something that's meant to be universal. So I, it's not surprising to me uh, to find that being dealt with here. But I think it's time. I think it's time to get this on TV. It's time for Star Trek. Um, actually to to deal to deal with this and i'm i'm very excited to watch this uh watch this develop yeah me too 
All right, what happens next? So next, they all run to the bridge, where Saru explains that this light is coming from the Klingon object, which is also emitting a signal pulse. And uh, here, Burnham asks permission to go to her quarters, and the captain is like, are you kidding me? We're in the middle of a crisis. But Burnham says, and I love this line, it's relevant. (laughs) I know. It was so like, what? (laughs) Like, not enough information, but okay. (laughs) I just thought it was great because it seems like a clear reference to Seven of Nine saying irrelevant. Oh, I didn't pick up on that. Yeah, I Um, think that's what was going on here, that we are getting, you know, the last time we had a female character who didn't want to have emotions and social connections would always say irrelevant. And uh, and now we get here, you know, the next character sort of in that line saying it's relevant. I just thought it was a nice, uh, a a humorous touch and and also a, a, a cute writing way to get out of the scene. So that yeah. we can get so that we can get Burnham where she needs to be, which is in her quarters, uh, talking to Sarek on the holograph phone. Sarek comments on the new star in her area, but Burnham wants to talk about Klingons. And in particular, she wants to know how the Vulcans managed to establish diplomatic relations with the Klingons 240 years ago. And I just want to point out before we leave this scene that, that 240 years ago is 2016, the year that this episode was written and production on the show began. I don't know what the significance of that is yet, but I think that we'll find out eventually in the sh- in the series. Yeah, interesting. Glenn, can you remind me um in the Star Trek universe but in Earth years, when is human Vulcan first contact? Uh, so that's the year 2063. So the Vulcans, yeah, make contact with Klingons before they make contact with humans. So this is this is new information in a lot of ways. What really should be uh, addressed in this scene is that holograph slash hologram, somebody can, some listeners can explain this difference to us, phone here allows you to sit. Did you notice that? He like oh, yeah. walks over to an object on the the ship and sits on it. And I was like, whoa, what is going on with this technology? Is he sitting on something? Like, is he, is his end of the phone call a projection of the room that she's in? Or what's going on? I don't know. That was like, that kind of freaked me out. I was like, how is he sitting? <laughs> yeah, I think if you go down this rabbit hole, you, you might not ever, you might not ever come back. You, you're you going to come back looking like Riker from the episode Fractured. And, uh, and nobody, <laughs> nobody wants, nobody wants that. So, <laughs> um, so but it, that was really striking for me in this scene. And I think that we'll get to this more. There's a lot to be said about this relationship. Hope, we're going to learn hopefully more about their relationship. But I did recently rewatch um, Journey to Babel the TOS episode uh, where we meet Sarek for the first time and we get to see him interact with his son Spock. And I think they did a good job with, with the way Sarek talks to um, to Michael here it feels authentic to the Sarek character and the type of relationship he has with his, you know, quote unquote children. Cause he's kind of harsh and mean and is always upset. His kids aren't Vulcan enough and, you know, jabs at them a little bit because of it. And he's doing that here and it feels consistent. It didn't, um, I felt like it was really it was on message <laughs> for his character. Uh, so I was happy with that. Yeah. And this is where we get actually Sarek's suggestion or perhaps insinuation that Burnham killed this Klingon intentionally, which I didn't quite pick up on until, you know, you, until we've been recording this podcast. And you mentioned that that's sort of what it looked like to you when we saw that scene. And so I think there might be something there. We might come back to this moment uh, in later in later episodes uh, where it turns out that Burnham knew exactly what she was doing in that moment, that she was giving into her emotions, giving into a sort of need for for vengeance, a need to avenge the, the death, the murder of her parents. 
So the thing that we really want to learn most here, of course, is how the Vulcans established diplomatic relations with the Klingons, but we do not hear Sarek's answer. In, but whatever the answer is, it sends Burnham storming onto the bridge in the next scene. She demands that the captain open fire on the Klingons, immediately and without provocation. And now she tells the captain, and of course us, the story that Sarek told her off camera. And that story is this. The first Vulcan ship to encounter Klingons was destroyed. And after that, Vulcans always fired at any Klingon ships they encountered, what Burnham describes as saying hello in a language the Klingons understood. And she, she goes on to say here that, that violence brought respect and respect brought peace. And so now Burnham wants the captain to give the Klingons a Vulcan hello. But of course, the captain reminds her Starfleet doesn't fire first. And so there's some real, real tension here. There's a lot going on uh, in this conversation. I think this is really the tipping point where you know burnham she like she this is a tipping point where she goes off the edge let's see how many more metaphors we can get in there <laughs> um but this is where i she i you know she loses me i'm not behind the character anymore it's clear that she's not acting rationally it's important that we see such a strong captain being like dude that's not how this works and which reinforces what sarek said which is this is a vulcan solution it's not a starfleet solution it's not going to work the same because we're not the same. And he's totally right. And the captain reinforces that. She's like, sure, maybe that worked, but we don't do that. We have rules. These, these are our principles. They're very important. Let's take them seriously. And yeah, this is really where um, everything goes wrong. And I don't just mean like everything goes wrong in the episode and there's drama. I mean, like for me, everything goes wrong. And this is really a strange point for Star Trek here to have our protagonist promoting unprovoked violence and and also suggesting you know sort of arguing for this worldview that the only way to get peace is to is to be the first to to do violence i mean that is that is antithetical to what star trek is about and so is this is very interesting i have a lot of problems here so it's probably best served if you finish the recap and we can talk about what happened yeah, sounds great. So so Burnham insists, uh, and this gets her taken to the ready room for a scolding. And she and the captain argue, and now Burnham Vulcan neck pinches the captain, which was, I think, a pretty pretty fun moment there. Uh, yeah, I agree. Do we often do we often see a Vulcan neck pinch from the front? That was interesting. It's usually from the back, right? Yeah, yeah, it is usually from the back, which probably has something to do with the you know the way that filming had to be done in TOS. So it was very cool to see it here. Yeah, I was like, whoa, it comes from the whoa, like it definitely. I was like. Oh, did not see that coming for a variety of reasons. I shouldn't have seen it coming. It's a ridiculous thing to have happened. Uh, but yeah, it was, you know, kind of cool. The Vulcan neck pinch is cool. Back on the bridge, Burnham pretends that the captain is on the phone with an admiral. So in the meantime, she's going to get the ship ready to fire just in case that's what the captain decides to do. And and Saru is suspicious, but the, the rest of the crew follows her lead. And just as Burnham gives the order to fire, the captain arrives and belays the order with a phaser aimed at her first officer and and i did not expect to see anything like this uh in the opening episode of star trek discovery yeah i didn't either also can you recover from a vulcan neck pinch that fast i mean if you're an awesome captain you can <laughs> okay you just have to be an awesome captain okay um yeah take us to the end so we can really talk yeah. about yeah this. we are we are almost here so before they can resolve the situation on the bridge the light of Kalis goes out and a bunch of klingon ships arrive bring in our episode to something of a cliffhanger ending that we'll pick up uh in the next episode more klingon ships they looked super cool they really did the design of the klingon ships here is 
awesome and the shot of them arriving is super cool really it was super well done really really well done so if i may bring up some feelings again about the voyager pilot which i think are relevant here the voyager pilot was fantastic i loved it like i said for all the same reasons that i really was on board with this pilot now again i'm talking about both halves of the voyager pilot here we've only seen the first half of the star trek pilot so we can keep that in mind but epic scope new people represented fun new aliens thankfully no neelix here and really you're drawn in you're interested you're like they got me we have all these homages all this stuff and then the last minute something happens that you're like i don't know where to go from here so on voyager i personally had a really hard time with janeway's decision to destroy the array and it just didn't seem consistent and it definitely seemed like how can the series move forward from here because the only logical next step is that her entire crew creates mutiny and you know doesn't allow this to continue or you know they're certainly not going to be chummy or follow her anywhere yeah they're going to they're going to hate her yeah they're going to hate her but they don't that's not what happens and and so I remember watching the Voyager pilot and being like, oh, I'm so into it. And then at the very end being like, well, now what do I do? Now how do I buy into this universe when this thing I just cannot get behind has just happened as a plot device? And why did it have to be that way? And that is what I'm feeling right now. I'm feeling, hold up, violent mutiny from a first officer who clearly is going to continue to be our main character how do I ever get behind her ever again? Like, how do I want to follow her as a main character? How do I buy into the fact that she is still a Starfleet officer and maybe going to get her own ship? I don't understand how how I'm supposed to watch the rest of it. Did you feel this way? I did feel this way. You're absolutely right. How And it, just thinking about it from the standpoint of everyone else who is on the bridge, most of whose names we don't really know yet. One of them is Ginny Weasley, I think. But I don't know how those people are going to... When the, whenever the, when, when we get the Battle of the Binary Stars, which is the ne- name of the next episode, so, you know, some spoilers there in the title, I guess, that we, I think at this point we can see it coming. Look, it's very clear that Michelle Yeoh, that the, that, that the captain is going to die and that Burnham is going to end up being in charge somehow. And I don't understand how anyone is going to follow her because she is right now demonstrating that she is suffering from some very serious uh, emotional trauma that is clouding her judgment to be polite about it. And that she's, she's even trying to mask that. She's lying to herself about it. She's trying to mask that with lot with uh, her logical demeanor her vulcan demeanor and i just you know if i'm a lieutenant on that bridge i'm not going to follow her I, I want someone else to be in charge when the captain yeah. is dead yeah that that fact that i also feel is going to happen um with the captain it makes me really sad because i fell in love with her immediately but you're you're totally right and so you know if we're going to make some harry potter jokes um i some of the things i was saying to, to friends after watching this was it feels like michael burnham is like harry potter book five like, yeah, caps lock Harry. Yeah, just like whiny and out of control and like impossible to deal with. And, but he gets a pass because we've known him and come to love him for four books. And also he's a 15 year old. We do not know her. We do not love her. And she's not a 15 year old. She's the second in command. So it's a little bit harder to get behind her mood swings. I am afraid that this is going to this is my prediction. I don't maybe it's bad to make predictions. I, I have a fear that what's going to happen is she's going to get a pass because emotions and trauma 
and you know what happened to her in the past it's gonna give her a pass people are gonna forgive her and then she's gonna have some sort of chosen one quality that's like only she because of her past can really serve us in the the battles to come um and i don't know about that so much yeah i don't know about that either that that so that would disturb me but i think even more for me the fear is actually that what's going to happen is she's going to be vindicated by being right by everyone thinking gosh we should have listened to burnham we should have fired first um if only we had done that then then everything would be okay and so then we're going to have a star trek show advocating the use of, of first strike capabilities, advocating the use of unmitigated violence, you know, essentially advocating that we nuke North Korea right now. Wow. That's what you think is happening? I'm worried that that's what's going to happen, that that if she's vindicated here, that, that yeah, that's the message that the Star Trek show will be sending, despite the fact that, like, the origins of Star Trek, you know, lie in in an anti-war message. Yeah, no, I that's, that's really interesting. I hadn't thought about that being the way this was going to go. Um, it's also a problematic way for this to go. So I will say that it sounds like neither of us are very hopeful, but I did spend an hour last night talking myself down by talking my friend down and saying, you know what? Voyager had all these problems and it was okay. It was okay. It wasn't as bad as we thought. Uh, We moved on. Things were fine. We got behind it. We found fun characters that we loved. We had, you know, monster of the week episodes. So what I'm trying to do now is say, I see a huge problem here and I'm going to try to get through it. I'm going to try to remain hopeful until I see the second half of this pilot. And I'm going to try real hard to do it afterwards as well. Um, Though I do get the sense that this Star Trek series is going to be a narrative arc. It's going to be very not episodic. And I think being episodic is one of the few things that could save some of the problems that we're predicting. Well, before we go, Valerie, uh, we've got one last order of business to take care of. And and that is to, to play Smooch, Mary Kill. All right, so we're just gonna leave. We're gonna leave us leave the leave the discussion of the podcast with our own little cliffhanger of like we're both kind of upset and we don't know what to do. So until yeah. next time. <laughs> yep, until next time. So so now smooch Mary kill Valerie. Who do you like? Can I make you guess who I'm gonna marry? Well, I think you're gonna marry Captain Georgiou. Yeah, how could I not? How could I not? She is just amazing. I suspect she's not long for this world, so I hope you're not on Earth waiting for her to come home. Oh, I'm going to marry her and take her away and save her, and it's going to be fine. (laughs) Um, Yeah, that's that's my plan. That's how I'm getting through this emotionally right now. The smooch and kill is really hard. yeah, we don't we don't know a lot about these characters yet, and so that's that's kind of problematic. That's perhaps that's maybe not a flaw, but it's a, certainly a feature of this episode that we don't get to know very many people on the crew yet. So your options are are pretty limited. But I think this is a good way, good heuristic device for us to get to get to talk about some of these yeah. characters. I think what I want to do is kill Michael Burnham because <laughs> I just want the problem to go away. Right. Like I, yeah. I'm upset with what's happening with this character, but I don't actually want to kill her. You know, I do want to see where it goes. I feel like the only responsible thing to say here is I should probably kill the crazy Klingon sect leader. He should probably go. And maybe that'll end some stuff. 
over there. And basically, all my decisions are just like shutting down the show. Like, I can't move forward. <laughs> I'm going to take the captain away. I'm going to get rid of the conflict by killing the head guy. Yeah, you just want everyone to get along, and you're you're going to do it. So, so, but the real question here now is, yeah, who are you going to smooch? Who's the character that you know you don't think is is partner material, but uh, <laughs> you would not mind uh, having a bit of a fling with? Uh, I think I'm going to, at this point, you know, this this will change and I hope we get to play again as I get to know new people. But I think um, there was there was a guy that was like piloting the ship for a while or maybe he was a science officer. He had like weird headphones above his ears. Do you remember this guy? He was like, I think he was bald also uh, or had a shaved head. I think I'll smooch him. He seemed cool. He seemed smart and nice and capable. <laughs> and, you know, like we could hang out for a little while, but it wouldn't be a big deal. You you are going to smooch a guy whose whose physical characteristics you you don't even recall exactly. Um, do you want to let listeners know what bar they might be able to find you at uh, sometime this weekend? Oh God, uh, yeah, just pick one. I'll be there. Like rethinking my life choices. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, that's what I'm going to go with. That's what I'm going to go with. Yeah, I think it's. I think those are good choices. That the, the show does kind of back you into a corner here, where we just don't have. Uh, we don't. We aren't introduced to enough people uh, to know. I was a little surprised though that you didn't. You didn't pick Sarek to smooch. I thought that's what you were going to do, <gasps> as he's got such I intensity. About Sarek. <laughs> you can. You can change your answer. No, I'm going to stay with it. I'm going to stay You're- with it. <laughs> Okay, gonna you're going to stick with random headphone, possibly bald guy. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Sounds good. <laughs> um, that should give hope to you, Glenn. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think it'll be it'll be my turn here eventually to to give you some answers, and I'm not sure my, I'm sure my smooch will be be much better. Well, with the smooching business taken care of, Valerie, I think that's going to do it for this episode. But we'll be back on Friday with Battle at the Binary Stars, and uh, until then, I'm Glenn McDorman. And uh, I'm Valerie Hoagland, and you can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. Yeah, come on over to the Clay Temple forums and let us know what you thought of Michael Burnham's decision to mutiny and to to try to give the Klingons a Vulcan hello. Yeah, and of course, let us know if you, you know, hard disagree with us on the uniforms and everything else. Um, We would love to hear from you. And until then, stay spacey. Woo!